right, welcome back to The Hammer Factor, where we help successful athletes and adventurers share their genius with the world. In this episode, we have a true endurance athlete and bikepacking genius, Arizona Trail record holder with over 20 years experience in the saddle racing mountain bikes, Kurt Refschneider. Welcome to the show. Did I say your name right? You said that just fine, yeah. Thanks. Excited to be here. Yeah, welcome to the Hammer Factor. And uh, man, I just love interviewing endurance athletes. There's just something about the mindset that goes along that makes it a fun interview every time. So uh, I'm looking forward to this as well. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Um, We want to find out through the course of this interview how you think, how you train, what you eat, how you plan, uh, what gear you use, all that fun stuff. But first... Can you share something with our audience that most people don't know about you? Oh, well, it seems like these days most people seem to think that I just ride my bike all the time and don't really do much else. And uh, I guess something to keep in mind through this whole interview is that I've been basically either a full-time grad student or full-time college professor or now um, full-time working as a executive director for bikepacking routes and running a coaching company. Um, all in addition to riding my bike a lot and racing my bike a lot. So I think that, um, that's something a lot of people don't realize and underscores just as something we'll talk about more, I'm sure, but just balance in life balance and training balance and sport and all that. Ah, man, let's get right into that. How do you achieve that balance? How do you find it? Oh, uh, it's been challenging. It's been, a well, since I really started racing at a high level, um, in which was when I was living in Wisconsin as a, a master's student, um, in God, 2006, I guess, is when I tried to start to really step up my game as a, a, a competitive cyclist. Um, ever since then, it's been an ongoing challenge and kind of an evolution. Um, at you know certain certain years through that, I did a really poor job of balancing things and more or less things worked out despite that maybe not everything but some things and i think it's just been in the last few years that i've really managed to find uh um a much better balance and you know part of it's just compartmentalizing like making sure that i dedicate certain parts of my life the time that they need at certain times and then open it up to focusing on other things at other times um so it's it's almost like kind of little binges of this binges of that uh and then most importantly, and I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail later too, um, but it's just been in the last few years that my my whole approach to training and, and doing these long races has changed to really prioritize having fun with everything mm. so that the training itself and the preparation doesn't feel like an obligation or feel like um, something that I just, I, I need to be doing in order to meet the results, but to make it something that actually I'm excited to be doing so that everything about it is kind of a uh you know stress release the that moving therapy that that endurance sports are for so many of us yeah yeah that's really interesting uh long before you were a tour divide winner i mean you're the record holder on the arizona trail correct both the 300 and 750 yeah long before any of that where are you from what were you like as a little kid what was little kurt like (laughs) I, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, in the suburbs of Minneapolis and, uh, you know, had a fairly unremarkable childhood. I didn't like, uh, ball sports or anything like that. Uh, but my parents made sure I always had a bike and I 
kind of gravitated toward just that riding around the neighborhood all the time as I got a little older and was allowed to like leave the neighborhood. Then uh, we had a lot of parklands and uh, kind of just woodlands along the Mississippi River right nearby. And so I started exploring all that on my bike. And, you know, that was when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old um, and just really enjoyed that kind of sense of exploration and getting away from from people a little bit, getting away from the neighborhood. And then, geez, when I was 13, I guess, um, I remember being in the the county library and, you know, they used to have these these racks that would cover a whole wall of just all the, the print magazines laid out so you could see the covers mm-hmm. of all of them. And I remember just walking by looking at the, the cycling magazines and there was a copy of Bicycling with one of their kind of cliche uh subtitles on it like you too can ride a century and i remember thinking what how do you ride a hundred years as a naive little (laughs) uh, 13 year old and so i picked it up and started paging through it was like oh it's a hundred miles not a hundred years that's funny and they had these you know little couch training plans for you know if you want to ride a century and survive it if you want to ride it and have a reasonable time or if you want to do it fast like follow this seven week progression or something like that um and so I took that magazine home and read more about it. I was like, huh, I kind of want to try that. And so my dad helped me find a used road bike that I think was 100 bucks at a um, thrift store. It was a Panasonic team, nice. if I remember right. And we rebuilt that together. And then I followed that training plan to a T. And he took me out to some 20-mile loop in the, the country west of, um, west of the Twin Cities that he had scouted out for me. And he just waited there in a parking lot at a church in the shade while I spent, I don't know what it was, seven and a half hours or something, eight hours riding that loop. And that was, you know, that was little Kurt somehow already interested in pushing his body or mind or, you know, something like that. I don't really know where it came from, honestly. So did you have any friends you were doing this with? Did you tell anybody? How did... uh... No, not... Not really. Like I had friends that I'd ride around the neighborhood with and we'd build jumps and go off jumps, but none of them like did any kind of distance stuff. So all, all the, the riding I did on the road at that point was just me all alone. I'm kind of in retrospect surprised my parents were fine with all that, but they seemed to be. <laughs> were you stoked when you finished? Yeah. I remember being completely exhausted and, um, just kind of like, cool. I mean, and I, I think this actually still goes comes through today with when I finish any big thing is it's not like a huge celebration or anything. It's like, awesome. It's I made it. I did that. And it just kind of like a, almost like a calm reaction to the end because there's so much that goes, goes into it. I think a lot of like emotionally, it's just like so much is left out there. Um, but yeah, I remember being exhausted and pleased. <laughs> now, professionally, you're a geologist, right? Yeah, I, I was, I'm not, anymore i guess but yeah i have a phd in um what is it it's kind of a combination of uh like glacial geology uh climate evolution uh landscape evolution uh some some combination of all that stuff is where my expertise lies and i taught at uh, prescott college uh here in prescott for six years and left that job just over a year ago now Okay. And is bikepacking routes taking over full time from that? What what have you transitioned into? Yeah, so it's a combination of, of running that nonprofit. Um and then uh I've started a, a endurance cycling coaching company uh five years ago now, I guess. And so that was something I was doing on the side for a while as I was teaching. 
uh, and then that's that's gradually but steadily grown. So kind of a combination of, of the the coaching and the running the the nonprofit. So as a geologist, you know, I'm looking over your resume of of rides you've done, places you've been. How does geology fit? I I know a few geologists uh, as someone who's spent a bunch of time in rivers and canyons and mm-hmm. you know scouring Google Earth. Geology is interesting to me more as a hobby than a profession. Yeah, yeah. Um, the 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 heat and pressure of it all, I don't I don't quite understand. But I mean, are you one of these people? I mean, when you're like thinking about doing a route or or, or you're getting ready to go on a big trip, are you like? you know, rendering your own LIDAR of the area and, and, and getting into that whole aspect of it, or does that not really fit into it? Yeah, no, it really depends on what the, what the trip is or what the race is. Um, so much of, of what I do both in, in these long races and in kind of expedition scale trips of my own, um, and even just short weekend trips, like so much of it is driven by a passion for, for landscapes and wild places. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously anyone that's spent a lot of time outside in the backcountry knows that the geology is what really dictates what the landscape looks like, what it feels like, how you can move through it or how you can't move through it in some cases or where the water moves through it. Uh, And so that's something that just my eye is always paying attention to. And it's what, you know, having seen landscapes certain places or seen them on Google Earth or seen them, you know, some kind of remote sensing data and been like, whoa, that looks amazing. Sometimes that's what actually gets me to a place to to go do a trip. Um, I think the races, the long races I've done that have been the most impactful for me are the ones that have moved through and traveled through the the most diverse and interesting landscapes and most remote landscapes in a lot of places, too. Yeah. Uh, and even when, when planning trips, yeah, there's so much that you can predict and, and understand about what a trip or what a landscape might be like based on looking at the geology, whether it's looking at trying to figure out what, what sections could be really sandy and slow, or if it rains, what sections might turn into impassable mud, right. um, things <laughs> like that. So just glancing over um, geologic maps of the area to, to get a bit of a feel for that. Yeah, it's, that's, that's something that's always on my mind. And then once I'm out there, it's just my my eyes get completely distracted by, by the landscape and trying to understand it, piece together little bits of the story. Oh, I bet. I bet you're seeing, you know, for, for me as a whitewater kayaker, once you learn to read water and, and you, you understand the way the currents work, you never can just go to an overpass and look at a, look at a waterfall Mm -hmm. the same, you know, you're, you're you're picking out a line, (laughs) you know, you, you know, so no, I can, I can relate to that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I'm sure for you, it, like, it doesn't matter what river you're on, water water behaves the same way in in different rivers all over the place. And so you can take that that way of quickly looking and interpreting something and understanding it. Same with, with geology. You know, once you start to understand a little bit about the evolution of landscapes, um, you can go to any other landscape and start to understand, you know, maybe little bits of it here and there, not all of it. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of the, the joyful parts of, of so much of what I do. Right. So you were in academia where you just wanted to do coaching or were you sick of academia? How did that transition happen? <laughs> oh, that's that's a good question. I think it was a combination of things. You know, I went uh, straight through from undergrad to a master's to PhD, which and like straight out of high school. And so that's, you know, the first two thirds of my life or something like that was spent in 
classes in the classroom outside whatever it was um but in some kind of educational setting and then transitioned straight into a teaching job here at prescott college which if you know i think in terms of teaching jobs the the opportunities here were the the most amazing you can imagine you know it's an experiential field-based curriculum um by design and so uh, instructors and professors have a huge amount of freedom to create courses and take students kind of wherever we want in the West. And I was able to create a course um, with a with actually the the who went on to be the the co-founder of Bikepacking Roots, my friend Kate Boyle. Um, we created a course called Geology Through Bikepacking that was a four week uh, course exploring the geology of the Colorado Plateau by bike. Oh, and cool. so just opportunities like that were phenomenal. Uh, and you, you know, there's a handful of places elsewhere in the country that you might have the freedom to put together courses like that. Um, but I think after a while, just teaching the same types of things year after year and not, you know, kind of all through grad school, it was this progression of learning more and more and more about all different things. And then teaching the same same types of courses year after year suddenly felt a little stagnant almost. Mm-hmm. And all everything beyond the teaching in academia was was less than enjoyable for me you know i'm not a huge fan of meetings in general and uh all the politics in academia as well yeah oh there's there is a lot and so i think i started looking for opportunities to uh expand in other ways and so the the coaching was one of those uh and then when when we launched bikepacking roots three years ago i guess um that was that was something that kind of pushed me to develop a whole lot of new skill sets and pretty quickly and give me lots of new opportunities for creativity. Uh, so that kind of became what I wanted to, to put my energy into uh, much more so. And it was obviously a, a bit of a jump. You know, academia is not a place that you're going to get rich at all. But jumping from that into running a nonprofit that's two years old and doesn't have much of a budget yet, that's <laughs> also not a success for, <laughs> or yeah. a recipe for getting rich or even, you know, huge job security in the long run. But so far, it's I'm quite happy with how all that's panned out yeah you're making it work so i've done a little bit of coaching and describe to me the satisfaction the frustrations and satisfactions of coaching (laughs) um let's see let's start with the frustrations uh i think the most challenging ones you know most almost all the athletes i've worked with are either kind of endurance cyclists mostly mountain bikers or ultra endurance and so they're just like any endurance athlete. They're doing what they're doing because they absolutely love it. And I think one of the biggest challenges and frustrations is getting those athletes to actually dial it back. And, you know, they want to be spending as much time as they can on their bikes in a lot of cases. And that's not necessarily the best way to get really fast, um, at, at these long events. And so getting them to actually step back and, prioritize okay this needs to be a fun long ride this needs to be a short hard workout or some combination but just getting rid of the like riding moderately hard all the time with all the free time that that athlete might have i think that's one of the most frustrating things because i like i can sense how much they just love riding their bike and so telling them to do that a little bit less um is yeah that's 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 hard um I think that's the and, and similarly, I guess some some of those same athletes getting them to understand the value of rest and the importance of resting just as hard as they're training, and that's 
that's a that can be a huge frustration and like a, a kind of sometimes an entertaining but a very long ongoing battle to get folks to like okay this is a rest week like make it legitimately restful and then i see on there reporting what they did in the last couple of days like no 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 <laughs> you know a desperate email like no you can't do that like take it easy knowing your lawn and painting your house and like doing all that that's not a rest day like yes <laughs> you know so i think those sorts of things are definitely frustrating um but you know not not hugely so um and then i think some of the really positive things that come out of it you know um some of the most supportive folks um, behind my racing actually are the the folks I coach, which is really cool because you know they're getting ready for a race. I help them out with um, with all sorts of things and getting their strategy, getting their plan ready, um, getting their gear and all that selected, nutrition plan, all that, um, and then giving them a whole range of advice based on you know their past races and experience and all that, and then. Uh, when I'm getting ready for one, they turn around and they'll email me like, so I think you'd probably say this if, if, if you were in your shoes <laughs> and then they'll just basically regurgitate my advice to them back to me, which is so valuable because I oftentimes lose sight of that, um, from a, you know, from within my shoes. Um, and then just watching the progression of, of some of these athletes from, um, you know, starting out as the just extremely enthusiastic person that might want to get into racing or they've done a lot of racing but are trying endurance stuff for the first time and just seeing those first races where they learn so much um, in them and then watching over the next six months or year or two years as they start to put a lot of that into practice mm. and really learn and grow and mature, um, even if they're already quite experienced as racers. Um, I think that's, that's the most rewarding thing. And then watching some of them like, okay, cool. I think, I think I'm ready to take this on my own and move, move away from coaching and then just watch them continue to excel, um, on their own based on everything they learned. I think that's a lot of, that's the, like the educator in me coming out and being happy to see them just go off on their own. You know, that really resonates that you start out as a coach, but eventually you become a team. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. um, I, I've never thought of it that way, but that, that definitely, definitely makes sense. What about yourself as a mentor? Um, have you ever had anyone who has helped take you to the next level? I did. Um, when I first got into to racing bikes at a, a more dedicated level. So like I did some mountain bike racing in high school and college, a little bit of road racing. But, um, when I moved to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, I started riding with this, this guy named Jim Holmes, who was another PhD student, um, in, what was he in like medical physics, I guess. And he was like studying, um, asthma in rats basically and, and using MRI technology to, to learn more about that. And so, you know, he's just this incredibly fascinating guy, but he had been racing on the road for quite a while and he kind of took me under his wing and started helping me understand a little bit more about training, um, from a, a smart perspective instead of just putting in big miles all the time and helped so much with strategy and road racing which was one of my favorite parts of the the road racing scene um and got me connected with with the team that he was on so then suddenly i had you know another dozen mentors and and some pretty experienced um riders and so he was he was definitely the first person to do something like that and just help me 
make huge strides in a pretty short time. Um, and you know, after, after that, I haven't really had any, any real mentorship in the racing side of things. It's been a lot of figuring it out as I go, um, which has been, you know, for me as a scientific, uh, having scientific training, like that's, that's part of one of my favorite elements of it is just the, the experimentation and kind of systematic approach to it, to -hmm. learning about, about what works and what doesn't for me. Do you think he was just your bud or do you think he was like, whoa, this guy's got something? I, I think it was a little bit of both. Yeah. Cause he, I actually don't even remember exactly how we met, but, um, we started, I started doing some cyclocross racing at his, um, his urging and he, he had been going out to race national championships a few years in a row at that point. And so he convinced me to go out and do the B race in Portland, um, God, when was that? Like 2006, I guess. And it was one of the horrendously muddy years there. I'd never raced in the mud before. And it was, you know, places on the course where it's like, I don't know, eight inches, 10 inches mm. deep and just a, a sloppy rut that you have to ride. And I had no clue what I was doing, but managed to ride to, I think it was fifth place in a field of like 140 riders. And I think at that point he was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> Needs, needs a little bit more guidance because he could he could do something. So yeah, cyclocross ended up being my focus then for the next like five years of of racing. You you've been into sort of all forms of biking. How did you end up? It seems like but you, where you've really kind of blossomed, and maybe this is just my take on it, um, is endurance bike packing. How did you settle on that? It kind of came on the tail end of racing racing cyclocross and. In cross, my goal after a few years of it was just to keep keep racing until I kind of stopped improving, and that took I don't know six years or so until I kind of plateaued. And I'm sure some of that was because I you know didn't have a coach, didn't still didn't know a ton about training at that point. Um, and uh, one of those, I guess, those last couple years I was racing in the summers, like I was living in Boulder, Colorado at the time in the summers, I really started doing a lot more long mountain bike rides, just exploring in the foothills above town and kind of realizing that, Hey, there's actually possibility to go ride for like five, six, eight, ten 10 hours up here. And there's a lot to, lot to find. And so I started doing that. And the last, uh, season I was racing cross, I heard about the Great Divide mountain bike race, which was the uh, predecessor to Tour Divide, and couldn't believe that people were racing, what, 27, or I guess the Great Divide race was like 2,400 miles Mm -hmm. across the country on mountain bikes, and then I discovered that the guy that was organizing that, Mike Kiriak, also organized a, a race called the Grand Loop in western Colorado and eastern Utah, and I was like, oh, that's actually close by, and it's well, it's only 360 miles, um, which at the time was sounded like impossibly huge, but so much more reasonable than 2,400. And so I, I decided I wanted to try to do that. And that was pretty much the end of my cyclocross racing as I discovered the these big rides and started training, doing big rides and realizing how much fun that was and kind of had gotten tired of going around in circles on the same courses year after year. And this the, these long, long adventures had so much more newness to them that that's, that's just what captivated me. And then, yeah, that just, that was 12 years ago at this point and been pretty continuously enamored by, 
by the prospect of these big races and mostly in pretty wild places is the, the thing that's really drawn me to them. Yeah. Well, once you realize that, I mean, the possibilities are endless, you know, once you, once you tap into that, you're like, I can ride my bike anywhere. Yep. Le- legitimately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, most recently you set the FKT on the grand loop. Um, for our listeners who don't know, FKT is the fastest known time. And, um, you recently did this on the grand loop. What is the grand loop? And can you kind of just tell me about your adventure there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, the grand loop I mentioned just a bit ago was one of these early bikepacking races. It was actually the, the first, uh, bikepacking race in the lower 48. I think the only, maybe the only bikepacking race to predate it is, um, the Iditarod trail invitation in Alaska, which is a, a wintertime, um, bikepacking race and amazingly that i think that's the oldest one in or its predecessor is the oldest one um but the grand loop followed not too many years later inspired by the iditarod because uh, mike kuriak had had spent geez many years racing on the iditarod um and so he was living in, in grand junction at the time and there was this uh series of trails a lot of mountain bikers know the Cocopelli trail which connects Grand Junction to Moab or Bruta to Moab. Mm-hmm. And it's like a 140 mile, mostly Jeep road route, not much single track, but lots of really rough, rugged, ledgy, chunky Jeep road. Um, and that area also, um, thanks to the Colorado Plateau Mountain Bike Alliance uh, or Mountain Bike Association, has a couple other trails called the Tabawatch Trail and the Paradox Trail. And those are both similar to Cocopelli, like long, you know, 100 plus mile, quite rugged, mostly Jeep road routes. And they all connect to kind of form a big triangle between Grand Junction and Moab and um, Montrose and back to Grand Junction again. And it's, if you ride the whole thing, it's about 370 miles uh, with a little under 40,000 feet of climbing. And it's, you know, the low elevation is down down close to 4,000 feet and the high is up at about 10,000. So it's hard to find a window to ride it when the snow's all melted off from up high, but before the low desert down below is like blazing hot. Mm. Um, but it's, it's an amazing route. It kind of fell off the radar. Um, it, the, the race, I think the last time there was an organized start in the race was 2009, the year after I did it, uh, the first time. And it kind of fell out of favor. I think mainly because, bike packers started at least the racers started to really want either single track or dirt roads and this is the really challenging in between type stuff that some folks love but most um are a little less excited about it than than i might be um and it's yeah it's it's just amazing desert riding it's if you've spent time riding on the colorado plateau in the moab area it's like half of the routes like that big chunk of it's up in the pines up high there's you know, huge canyons that you traverse around and a few that you cross. And yeah, it's, it's just stunning terrain. And aside from, there's like a 20 mile section through the Grand Valley between Grand Junction and Fruta on like rec path. And you're kind of going through, through the edge of the city. But aside from that, I think in the other 350 miles, you probably pass something like 20 buildings and that's it. Like it's incredibly remote country out there. Um, and I remember the first time I did it in 2008, just being absolutely blown away at how remote it was. And had, I honestly had no clue where I was. I was just following this line on my GPS and had some maps in my backpack just in case I had to 
you know, figure out how to get somewhere off course if something went wrong. Um, and ever since that first time I've wanted to go back and race it again. And it took 12 years despite thinking about it every single spring, um, before I, um, finally was able to get back there this year. You think, uh, just kind of being locked down with COVID and everything really, really prompted that or, or well, it's, it's kind of, it, it I was, I had kind of given up on being able to go do it this year. Um, because I'd in March, I was actually up racing the Iditarod trail invitational in Alaska and then spent, um, a few days recovering from the, the 300 mile race and then continued on the trail with a friend, um, to do some, some touring just farther along the route. And, we eventually um, ended up flying out of like right in the middle of Alaska because the uh, villages farther along the trail were shutting down um, due to coronavirus and were asking um, visitors to stay away. So we ended up flying home. I came back to Arizona and, you know, recovered from that, started training with the Grand Loop in mind. But, you know, we were on lockdown. So many of the um, the counties in Colorado were discouraging any kind of tourism. And before I knew it, it was late May, which is starting to get really hot down low. And those counties were still closed to, to tourism. And so I'd pretty much given up on being able to do it because by June there's, there's usually not a weather window cool enough to make it reasonable to like legitimately race that route. Um, but then pretty quickly things started changing. Those counties all opened up the, um, counties in Eastern Utah around Moab opened back up to tourism and it actually became, um, reasonably responsible to go up there and do it. And so I, I decided to carry all my own food. I basically drove up there, stopped at a gas station on the way and then parked, um, up at the high point on the course and packed all my own food for the full 370 miles. So I didn't even stop to go in any buildings to get food or water along the way and just raced it as self-supported as you possibly could. Nice. And so how long did it take you? It took, uh, little over 53 hours to do it and the first time i did it it was uh took a little under three and a half days and so this time was just over two days and um this i managed to take seven hours a little over seven hours off the course record um jesus you blew the doors off of that one yeah and amazingly it was even on a the the course has evolved a little bit despite not many people racing it the the paradox trail has changed a bit over the years and so it was actually a probably a three to four hour longer route than it had been in the past so it went it went amazingly well for me man congratulations did you sleep how was how did the ride go for you um the well i mean the ride went incredibly smoothly i had no mechanicals um, of any sort with the bike. My body held up really well for it. Um, didn't really have any, any nagging discomforts or anything that, that lasted for more than a few hours at a time. Um, my legs felt fantastic. Like there literally were, it was twice that I felt tired. Like my legs felt tired in the whole time and just backing off and eating, eating a bunch of food, um, made a big difference with that. And I stopped, Let's see, the second afternoon I took a 10-minute nap, and then the second night I stopped twice for a 10-minute and a 15-minute nap. And other than that, I was pretty much either moving or filling up water bottles or rearranging food from one place to another on my bike so I could actually just get it and keep eating. But pretty much it was just moving for 53 hours. Man, incredible. So one thing about that a lot of people don't know about endurance – 
just endurance exploits in general, two things. One is it's very emotional. And I don't know if you've experienced this. Most endurance athletes mm-hmm. have experienced this, but uh, you, you, you have these just waves of emotion and it's there's kind of a token term for it, runner's high, but I don't believe that's an accurate mm-hmm. way to put it uh, myself. But how do you, um, you know, and, and then you have sleep deprivation. And when mm-hmm. you combine the extreme exhaustion with the sleep deprivation, it's sort of this magic, weird, emotional cocktail. How does, how do you, how would you describe that to our listeners? I mean, I I think the easiest way to relate to it is that some of the highest highs and the lowest lows you can experience are in events like this, where you're just pushing your body and your mind um, and your emotions so hard um, for so long. And you know, it, it varies dramatically for everyone what those highs are like and what the lows are like. And, you know, the better you can take care of yourself out there, the less severe the lows tend to be. Like, you know, I re- remember back in my early days of racing ultras that those lows were so low because I was just, I was horrendous with a self-care. Like I'd let myself get way behind on calories or dehydrated. Um, I'd go way too hard at times and then I'd, my, my body would pay for that at other times. Um, I'd, basically ride until I, you know, was falling asleep pedaling before I'd stop and sleep rather than stopping like preemptively to (laughs) avoid getting into, you know, it's just so many, there's so many things you can do to take care of yourself that, that make the riding way more enjoyable. Um, and I think that has, for me, that evolution has really helped the highs get even higher and the lows become much, uh, much less severe, much more tolerable. And, and then beyond that, um, I think one, uh, one realization I had a couple years ago as I was preparing for, I, I, what was it? It was the Arizona trail, um, 750 that year, actually, I was trying to think about just like on the course, what is it that is most intimidating or like seems the most difficult thinking about it from afar. Um, and you know, on that one, it's just so many really technical miles of single track and how those just slowly wear on you. Or last year, um, when I was getting ready for the Colorado Trail race, it was you know the thing that's intimidating me the most in that one. And that was a race I'd started four times and hadn't actually come close to finishing, aside from one year where I just reverted to tour mode. Um, that race, the biggest challenge for me, both mentally and physically, were these you know 3,000-foot-long climbs that take hours to get up on trail. Uh, and so part of my training attitude in the past few years has been this concept of normalized difficult, like find the thing that seems the most difficult in these races and focus on that as one of the, the things that you do in your training. And so just like last year I was doing as much, uh, for the Colorado trail race prep, I was doing as much, uh, big, long, chunky climbs as I could. And by the time I got to the CTR, the climbs in that seemed amazingly rideable. And they went by pretty quickly. And so I was like, my head was never actually intimidated by those or daunted by them during the race. Um, and in my prep for the grand loop this year, it was some of the most fun prep I've ever done because I spent, um, basically a month just riding all these rugged Jeep roads and moto trails in the mountains south of where I live. And they're some of the most rugged, chunky, blown out trails anywhere overgrown. Like they're kind of horrendous but I really actually enjoy that kind of riding a lot. And so my training was like a month of just that stuff. 
And when I got back to the Grand Loop, it was the same thing. It's like, wow, this is pretty tame compared to what I was just doing. And so that helps the mindset tremendously that if, if the, the hardest parts of what you're doing in a race are no longer the terrain or the trail or anything like that, it's, you know, just the pedaling for 50 hours, which is, you know, that's dang tough in and of itself, but it gets rid of one of the, the most mentally daunting parts of it. That also helps you just step back and, and enjoy where you are and what you're doing so much more. I've always, this is, this is a super important topic for any of our listeners who are are interested in stepping out of their comfort zone. I've always believed that and have noticed not only with friends and, and personal experiences, but just through these interviews that the most successful athletes are adept in the art of being comfortable in the uncomfortable. Mm. And just to reiterate what you're saying is when you put yourself in that uncomfortable situation day in and day out prior to what you were doing, it allowed you to be comfortable and relaxed when you actually showed up on game day. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you, with, with so many of the athletes that I coach, one of the, the big things that we talk about before any race is like, what are the controllables in that race environment? What, what can you actually change, uh, from, you know, one hour to the next one day to the next, whatever it is. And, you know, there's so many things within your own approach, whether it's mental, whether it's nutrition, whether it's your pacing, whether it's just sitting down and collecting yourself, eating a snack and letting your energy return, Uh, when you're bonking, like those are all things you can control and you can control your reaction to like, okay, it's going to be a cold rainy day today. Like you can reframe that and mentally, uh, find a better, better mindset to be in. But then like the fact that, you know, you can't control the rain, you can't control the weather, you can't control that the next 10 miles are going to be horrendously sticky mud because that's just what they are. And so like, yeah, those are things you can't control, but your mindset, like you were saying, is something that you can. And so using the, the preparation for a race to actually uh, basically reframe the mindset you're able to get yourself into during the event is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. You, you weren't always smashing FKTs by seven hours and whatnot. What, what's your lowest moment in your career? Um, it would be a few years ago, what, 2016, 2017, I guess. Yeah, I think it was those, those two years kind of, I had a, a bit of a run of a few races that just didn't go well for me. The Colorado trail race was one of those that I think I started it three years in a row and had dismal, dismal rides each time, um, dropping out pretty quickly, had some recurring injuries from just not being smart with my training and some some nagging overuse stuff and then also just some energy general energy issues that took a while to figure out just what they were um and i think it was a combination of maybe maybe a little bit too much time on the bike too much training um but then also with everything else going on in life with you know at that point i was working two jobs and getting bike packing routes off the ground so kind of three almost and um, just life stress around all that relationship stress. I think there was just too much weighing on me and ended up needing to just step back. And I kind of thought maybe I was done 
racing ultras at that point for a little while um and just had fun on the bike did some really fun trips um bike packing with you know zero emphasis on speed whatsoever and by what i guess late 2017 i kind of felt the urge to race coming back and racing the arizona trail 750 um kind of seemed like maybe something i wanted to do at that point and so i actually started training in like uh october of that year i think and i approached that with the attitude of like i'm not committing to racing the azt yet i'm gonna train for three months and basically get to to beginning of 2018 and see how i feel see if i'm having fun with the training see if my body's responding well see if my energy is is staying up um and that was when i really started to prioritize uh just making training as fun as i could um which involved you know doing intervals on trail rather than doing intervals on you know the paved road that you could get the perfect effort in but Mm. doing it on trail which was way more fun and you know less ideal from a you know pure training perspective but um but yeah by by the the end of that year i was quite excited to race the the 750 so then i was like okay cool i'm all in for for prep for another three months for that and um yeah and then that that ride was i think up to that point the strongest strongest ride i'd had in any ultra ever nice would you say that sticks out as as one of your uh your, your favorite memories or best performances I think definitely one of the best performances. Um, it, I, I, that was the most fun I'd ever had at any ultra. Like I was out there for six days, and you know there were there were such a such a small percentage of the time was those deep lows. You know, almost I mean, so few I could count the number on one hand. Whereas in the past it was like that would be a cycle in any given day there would be a couple of them probably. Um, and so, yeah, so that, I mean, it was kind of like a, a revelationary experience for me, um, in racing, but I did, the first time I did the, the AZT 750 was in 2010, I guess it was the first year anyone had raced that route. And that one, like that stands out cause it was just such a huge adventure. Um, I knew nothing about two thirds of the trail or the terrain or anything. Um, uh, so that was a really fun one. And then, uh, racing the. I did Rod Trail Invitational in Alaska this past March. It was also a huge highlight because it was just an incredibly fun event. Like I was being pushed hard by two other, two other guys, two Alaskans, um, and it was a pretty epic year with the weather. Um, but it ended up being just a really, really enjoyable event despite some some horrendous conditions. Yeah, you know, a, a friend of mine, Pete Ripmaster, he um, won that race, the running. Um, category of that race category oh i can't imagine doing that (laughs) but he had some epics he like fell in the river one time or the ice was thin did you have any kind of experiences like that up there no fortunately not um you know things went pretty smoothly but i mean we had a basically blizzard conditions the second day and night going over the alaska range and then the what was the third night temperatures dropped to almost minus 50 which i had never experienced anything below oh. like minus 20 basically oh, so brutal. Uh, yeah it was a ama- like it was frighteningly cold like you just i couldn't stop moving because i didn't have enough warm clothes to to keep myself warm at those temperatures if i was just standing still 
um, which that gets that's scary. That like that starts to weigh on you because it's like shit. If something goes wrong, uh, this is this is serious in about two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are there and in it. And were you solo at that time? We were. I was on. Let's see. I think the entire race, the three of us at the front, were probably never more than like thirty minutes apart or sixty minutes apart. Um, it was really close, and like some of the time we were riding together, but a lot of time we were just like chasing one another, um, relatively close to one another. And that night, um, I ended up. We were. It, <laughs> it was a section of trail that had not seen much snowmobile use. And like, it's not a groomed route. So just whatever snowmobiles happen to go through they're they're the ones that pack the trail down. And there were a couple snow machines that went through that evening and just churned everything up and it was completely unrideable. Mm-hmm. And so we literally pushed our bikes the entire night, um, through those, those cold temperatures. And so I was with, um, one of the the Alaskan guys that whole time and I'd caught up to him and he was just like standing in the trail trying to stay awake and he's like can I just can I just follow you so that I have something to pay attention to and so we just took turns walking in front of the other one all night trying to stay awake and it was it was definitely a little bit scary but having someone else there um helped uh helped quite a bit just ease ease the mind yeah for sure and and in that event they have these kind of uh tents that you a aid station slash tents. I'm not sure what they call them. That you, yeah, uh, yeah. So, it's not quite purely self-supported, but it's. I mean, in the second half of the race, there's you basically leave a uh, leave a little cabin on the south side of the Alaska Range. Have to go over the Alaska Range, and then there's another tiny little cabin uh, or tent. I guess that's a, a tent, uh, big canvas tent that they have set up with a little wood stove in it and like some hay bales to sleep on, and then you got what like 75 miles to a little village where there's a a checkpoint building and then another from there 50 or 60 miles to the finish in another little community so it's like it's a long way if conditions are fast it might not take that long to get from one to the next but 70 miles in poor conditions that can easily be like a day of just you on your own out there so it's yeah, there's there is a little bit of support, which is I think it's it's crucial for an event like that to avoid catastrophe. And even at a couple of those checkpoints, um, they they fly um, drop bags of food that you can send ahead, so that uh, you don't have to carry all your food for the event from the start. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's that's also really really helpful when you're eating so many calories just to stay warm. Epic, epic. And how much daylight did you have? Um. Oh, that's a good question. I, th- I think it was about probably ten hours of complete darkness in that one. Okay. Um, so maybe that, ten and a half. So, so that, it, I mean, it was a while, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, it's it was in mid March, so that's getting getting to the point where the days are getting longer by like I don't know what ten minutes a day or something up there. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> let's get into some nuts and bolts. What's your diet like? Not during race, are you know what are you? What are your trends there? Uh, no fad diets of any sort. Just kind of try to have a well-rounded diet. Um, eat well, eat lots of veggies. Um, always struggling to get as much protein in as I think I need, despite eating meat. Um, 
yeah, you know, I've experimented with different fad diets, um, keto and um, paleo and some of those, especially when like I've had a lot of athletes that that are are quite hooked on on one or another of those. And so I've spent some time both for personal reasons and just out of curiosity. And in reality, the the my best performances and the folks I've worked with, their best performances usually come when they're just eating a, a pretty well-rounded diet. Um, during races, I, that's something I've spent a lot of time really trying to figure out what the best approach is. And, you know, for a while I was really, well, after years after just like racing tour divide for a few times and kind of living off gas station food and so much sugary stuff for, you know, two weeks on end, <laughs> um, kind of got tired of that stuff actually. And I, transition to the other end of the spectrum like trying to eat uh, as much much of a paleo type diet while racing as i could which i think um was somewhat helpful for me but since then my 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 approach has really migrated more toward like figure out what really sounds good in these races to eat like what what's going to make it easy for you to keep eating 350 calories an hour which is a lot to be taking in i mean it feels like you're kind of eating constantly um, but if, if I can figure out the things that I think in a particular race and, you know, particular temperatures are going to sound the most exciting to eat, um, then that's how I'm going to have the best energy for in a particular event. And so this past year I've been really focusing on that and like up in Alaska because it was cold, there were so many different options that you can have to eat unlike warmer races where you know a lot of things melt or just get so soft you can't even eat them Mm -hmm. so up there you know i had the best most enjoyable diet i've had was just like uh different kinds of crackers mixed with um mixed with different things and you know broken up chocolate bars and cut up pieces of um uh different energy bars and little mint chocolate covered cookies like just all different stuff big variety in there and even the last afternoon, I remember I was just, I was on the attack, um, in front of the other two guys and going as hard as I could on the, you know, day four of an event like that. And I was just like pulling out Ziploc bag after Ziploc bag of these mixes and dumping them into my little feed bag on my handlebars and getting excited every time I did that. And so that, that like, I, my energy was so good in that race, despite it being uh, a pretty cold one. Um, so that's, that's become my priority is just like try to have as much fat and protein as possible, but there's going to be a lot of just simple carbs and sugary stuff in there and make it stuff that you're going to want to eat. What was your experience with keto? Like, like training Uh, with that, with that diet? It, so initially I felt really good for a few weeks and you know, it was a definitely a challenge to figure out like what, what kinds of food worked well, um, just what the options were even. Uh, but pretty quickly, I think after three or four weeks, it's close to four weeks. Um, the poor recovery, um, really started to catch up with me and that became, and I had experienced that same thing on a a pretty strict paleo diet the year before that, that became the biggest challenge was after a little while, the recovery just went to crap, um, pretty consistently. And I've worked with quite a few athletes that have experimented with both paleo and keto. And that was, it was the exact same progression for them that initially they feel way better and then kind of returns to feeling okay and being able to train just fine. And then the recovery goes down. Um, and my, uh, my take on all that was 
it really was those first few weeks when when me and those other athletes felt really good was probably most likely related to just eliminating a fair bit of processed um, food and sugary stuff from the diet and body just reacts really well to having less of that Um, but then when you're cutting out a lot of carbs um, you know that's especially the complex carbs and starches that's like that's what our bodies really need during recovery and if you're not getting that then you're just not going to recover well from from hard workouts day after day right did you get real skinny um i lost a few pounds but my my weight just doesn't vary all that much um no matter what i do like even after these long races most of the time um i've even done a few where i end up being heavier afterward than i am before and i think it's a little combination of like water retention but also just having eaten so much during the race um that you know there's still a bit of a calorie deficit but then in just the like i don't know 12 hours or 24 hours after you eat so much more and then the body's like oh you're done and you're giving us all this and then it just holds on to all of it (laughs) so for me the only time i actually gain weight seems to be in the immediate aftermath of these races um what through your experience and and opinion and what's worked what what's the foundation how would you describe the foundation of endurance training and break it down over let's say uh, i know that year over year you can you you can have gains that that stack over time long term and that's one conversation but if you had to break it down into a 12-week cycle someone who wanted to train for an endurance event, what would you tell them to focus on? What would be like the pillars of that training? Yeah. So I think the one of the most important things is making sure that going into that 12-week cycle, they've just spent a lot of time doing whatever their, their sport is um, in the months leading up to that. So like two or three months minimum of just kind of quote-unquote base training, which can be a lot of lower intensity um, can be some definitely some moderate and higher intensity mixed in there, but just time doing what they're doing. Just so, volume. The, yeah, so that the, the body's ready for a little bit more. The body's ready to be pushed a little bit and have a bit more um, more volume crammed into a shorter amount of time. And that the muscles and the connective tissue and all of that is already adapted to the activity so that as you start to ramp up, you're not at nearly the risk for overuse injuries. Um, as a result. So I think that's, that's an important, really important thing. That's the starting point, because there are too many endurance athletes that are like, cool, I'm going to go do this big event. It's four months out. I got to go now. And they just jump in, uh, full bore into training coming from maybe not doing all that much. And oftentimes that results in a few weeks later, suddenly having to step back and let the body actually recover a little bit from, doing too much too quickly so the starting point is critical um and then i think once once you're in that three month window and you have a good base like you can you can make some pretty huge gains um a few really important rules of thumb um one i mentioned earlier like train hard and rest just as hard like make sure that there's regular um rest in there and you know for for me, that's usually one or two days completely off each week. And I I personally usually train for like two and a half weeks hard and then take like four days easy. Um, 
and for a lot of the athletes I work with that have, you know, full-time jobs, families, that sort of thing, two weeks at a time usually is about the most, um, that, that folks can sustain before really benefiting from a few days of recovery. And it's both like physical recovery and mental recovery and just dealing with life and like playing catch up on anything that they may have fallen behind on during those four days so that suddenly then their their brain feels relieved and they're excited to get back to training maintaining Um, that balance exactly yep um and then another rule of thumb is uh which i think is really important for so many uh endurance athletes to remember is make your hard days hard and your easy days easy like again easy days they need to be kind of recovery focused um, hard days, like make them hard. And those could be long days, like big volume days. Those are hard. Um, or they could be high intensity days or some combination, but like make those days hard. Like those should be taxing. And it's, it's the too many days spent doing moderate intensity that so many endurance, endurance athletes end up getting into a bit of a black hole, so to speak that, you know, you you reach a point where your your endurance isn't necessarily growing and you're not getting any faster you're just putting in a lot of time at moderate intensity and wearing yourself down because of that so um avoiding that and hard days hard easy days easy that's that's a good uh rule of thumb to to help with that so i want to repeat that real quick for all our listeners keep the hard days hard and when it's time to go easy, take it really easy. Don't get stuck in the grind of just grinding day in and day out and expecting it to pay off in a big way. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and it can work. Like I did that for, God, the first few years I raced ultras and raced Tour Divide. Like there were a couple years there that I spent a thousand hours on the bike, which it, I don't know how that was possible, but that's like, that's literally an eighth of the year. <laughs> I pedaling and you know my endurance got huge but i didn't really get much faster in doing that and that was you know kind of that was when i started to realize that maybe actually i need to look into other other types of approaches to training um but yeah anyway getting back to that that three-month progression then um i think one of the the biggest things that a lot of endurance especially ultra endurance athletes overlook is the importance of intensity in training and, you know, if you're, if you're racing for three days or six days or two weeks straight, like you're going to spend almost no time in zone three or zone four or zone five. So a lot of athletes take the approach of like, well, if I'm not racing in that, that intensity, then I don't really need to train there either necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are so many physiologic adaptations that your body goes through that are really uh, only spurred on by training at those intensities, those higher intensities. And a lot of those things actually come back and help improve your speed and improve your aerobic endurance at lower intensities. So there's a lot to be gained from spending a fair bit of time at moderate and high intensities in that training progression. And similarly, especially for, for, um, mountain bike, like alternatives, mountain bike races, there always are going to be times when for short spurts, you need to go harder, whether it's like just getting up a steep climb to avoid getting off and pushing, um, you know, little technical moves that you have to do, even if just a few hard pedal strokes at a time, but the more adapted your body is to those short efforts, the less of a toll each one of those is going to take on your body. And so, you know, if you've done almost no high intensity 
training in there. Every one of those little moves is like burning a little match. Mm. And if you're having to do that 300 times the first day and 300 times that night and 300 times the next day, like that, that's going to take a toll. So in that progression over, over three months, I think the, what I, the, a general approach that I'd recommend is, you know, that first month include a lot of moderate intensity, longer efforts in there. So like one day a week might be doing a, a longer zone three effort. Um, I do a lot of training and recommend a lot of training in what's called the sweet spot, which is kind of, it's not easy and it's not hard. Um, it's, it's something that at first it feels a little demanding and then the more time you spend, the harder it starts to feel. Um, and you know, if you train by typical heart rate zones or power zones, that's like right at the zone three, zone four boundary, um, or a little bit, uh, a little bit below your, your threshold heart rate or, um, threshold power and doing long efforts, like working up to being able to do 20 or 25 or 30 minute efforts, um, at that intensity and doing a few of those, um, in a day. Uh, those, those are really, really beneficial. It's pretty high bang for the buck with those. And then in the second month of that progression, like starting to include more of that longer efforts, including some higher intensity, shorter efforts yet, and really starting to work those in to long rides so that you're doing them on fatigued legs already. And so one of the, one of my favorite parts of a training progression is, is like, kind of getting toward a month out from a big event and you've been training for two, three, four months and start to do what were hard workouts, uh, two months before, but doing those after you've been on the bike for like four hours or five hours and doing them in the tail end. And it just like psychologically, it makes you feel almost invincible. Um, it's, I love it. Um, but it definitely is challenging and you know it's it's definitely something to not try to do too soon because otherwise it can be kind of demoralizing because you're like oh shoot i can't even <laughs> five minutes at this intensity now um so it's it definitely takes some some build up to that uh and then the last uh the last month really is kind of playing it by ear that's the time that too much doing too much asking too much of your body is going to really put a good performance in in your target race in jeopardy so you're almost better off erring on the side of a little bit less, in my opinion, in that last month leading up to an event than trying to cram in too much. Um, and then usually for, for ultra endurance athletes and endurance athletes, like starting a taper, you know, it might be six or seven days out. Or if you're doing a really long event, even like 10 days out from that event um, is a, a good time to really dial it back and start to recover in a serious way. Both intensity and volume? Yep, both. What about sleep? Uh, as much as you can get. <laughs> it's as simple as that. That is my um, hardest, hardest thing to oh, keep I in know. check I, when I'm when I'm trying to get fit. I know, and especially for endurance athletes when they're trying to balance life and training and everything, it's like, well, I'll just I'll just go to bed a little later. I'll get up a little earlier. I mean, triathletes seem to be one of the worst examples of this. Stereotypically, you know, getting up super early to do one of their workouts. Um, at you know 5 a.m. or something like that and if for for anyone out there that that wants to learn more about um sleep and just physiologically what goes on there's a really good book that came out a couple years ago um what is it called why i think it's called why we sleep and it goes into gory detail in a very good way like broken down uh both from a scientific perspective and for just a layperson perspective um, 
what the body does during different phases of sleep. And uh, it's one of the author's um, big premise, premises in the book is that there's an epidemic of um, basically lack of sleep, of sleep deprivation in the country, in the U.S. especially um, today. So it's like a societal problem and is responsible for so many different illnesses, especially um, potentially things like Alzheimer's and cancer and things like that from perpetual sleep deprivation. And one of the most eye-opening things for me personally learning about this more was so much of the body's uh, recovery processes that, you know, if, if you've done hard workout one day, there's all this cellular repair that needs to be done. And there's all this stuff in your brain that needs to like waste metabolic waste that needs to be cleared out. And so much of that is done in the last two hours of an eight hour sleep period. Things you need to keep an eye on to know if you're getting enough sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's, you know, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for a lot of endurance athletes is that if you're shortchanging yourself on sleep that because of your training, you need to reprioritize things because that's not necessarily going to actually benefit your performance down the road. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, why we sleep is the name of that book. It's by uh, Matthew Walker. Um, and that's definitely worth reading. Writing this down right now. <laughs> why we sleep. <laughs> Oh, so tell us about bikepacking roots. How did that, uh, you're the founder of this, I believe. How did this come along and what's it all about? Yeah. So I never saw myself, uh, creating or running a nonprofit. Honestly, didn't know anything about it. Um, but yeah, I mentioned Kate Boyle earlier. She was, um, uh, adventure education instructor and then professor at Prescott college when I was teaching there and she's since moved on as well. But she and I did quite a few expeditionary bikepacking trips, um, in the geez, or early 2000 teens or however you say that um, 2013, 14, 15, like that, that time period, we did some big international trips. Um, and she, she comes from uh, kind of environmental ed and adventure ed background and really together we envisioned that or identified there's this, you know, rapidly growing bike packing community. At that point it was, you know, we didn't have numbers on how quickly it was growing, but really really quickly and there were no organizations that were really putting together high quality dirt routes for people like there's lots of user created routes out there and they're you know some are fantastic some are you know you find yourself hopping gates with no trespassing signs and things that are pretty unacceptable for for public quote-unquote public routes um but beyond that, there were no organizations that were really focused on advocacy for public lands or access issues that bike packers face, which are definitely a little bit different than, you know, typical mountain bikers that, you know, you know, everyone needs trails. We that's that's clear. And the International Mountain Bike Association's really done a great job on both kind of trail construction, working with communities to build great networks. But they've moved away from much of a backcountry focus at this point. Um, and you know, it's those backcountry trails and the long distance connectivity that is is a pretty unique need for bike packers. Um, and then beyond that, yet we had this basically a, a new user group, new uh, new recreational community, and there's huge opportunity to help 
educate those people more about the places that we ride and the importance of preserving those, of conserving them. And so kind of a combination of conservation education, public lands education, advocacy became a, a, a big goal of ours um, in that. And so so we launched uh, Bikepacking Roots in 2017, just over three years ago now. Um, and we're a 501c3 nonprofit. And we've pretty quickly grown. It's been kind of mind-blowing how quickly things took off. But we've got almost 6,000 members now oh, man, um, nice. all over the country and world. It's We have a, both a free membership level for basically people that want to just voice their support for what we're doing and then and some, some paid membership tiers as well. And we've put together a few different long-distance routes um, around the country. The, the biggest one is the Wild West route, which is a 2,700-mile uh, route through uh, Idaho, Montana, Utah, and Arizona, basically parallel to the Great Divide mountain bike route, mm-hmm. but a little bit farther west. And the the focus of that one was to really showcase the wild and public lands expanses through those states. So we have a, a guidebook that's almost 100 pages that has both all the logistics information you need and a bunch of um, public lands educational material in there. We're just about to release uh, basically an alternate little route network off that Wild West route um, through the Bears Ears region of Utah, which folks have probably heard a lot about in the last few years. It's really been a, a flashpoint for both public lands issues uh, and conservation issues and indigenous issues. Um, and so we've we've created a couple of routes in that area that we'll be releasing along with a hundred page guidebook to that explores everything from from the indigenous history of that area to the the monument um, controversy and the the role that the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition had in pushing that monument process forward. It was the first national monument ever designated that was suggested by Native American groups. Um, and so, and the, and the riding out there is absolutely stunning. So that's one of the, the big root projects we've been working on this past year. And then we've been, been working on a lot of different advocacy issues, uh, mostly related to access and public lands over the last couple of years. And so we're steadily growing our, our capacities in that realm. We just uh, announced a new project with the, uh, with NICA, the national interscholastic cycling association, mm-hmm. which is that huge giant fan, huge fan of that organization. Le- yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things that they've been doing in the last couple of years that I've loved is, you know, I've been a bike racer for my whole life, it seems like. Um, but I also really see the huge value in the non-competitive side of things. And like, that's, what's going to keep, keep those kids riding their bikes for the rest of their life is the stuff beyond the racing. And so, so Nike has been, been rolling out a few different new programs related to more adventure and exploring. And one of those things is a new bike packing program that, that they're going to be getting out. So we're developing the, the curriculum for that, um, this year, which is a really exciting project to be very, part of. Very cool. These, these guides that you're talking about to these routes, do you write those? Yeah. Yep. We've been, we've been writing those ourselves and the, yeah, we, you know, our route development process so far has been a lot of scouting by, um, either us or, um, some of our, our route development volunteers. And then for the, the bigger routes, we then try to get a, a group of, of volunteers to go out and ride those routes and give us feedback on them and help, um, build awareness of those routes in communities along the way with businesses. So they know that something, something new is being developed. Um, in some cases, working with land managers just to, to make sure everything is, is fine with them. You know, we don't need permits or anything for this kind of development. Since we're not building trail on the ground, we're basically linking together existing infrastructure. Um, 
and then yeah putting together some really detailed both digital and print resources so um gps data and like the wild west route has a waypoint data set with water sources and public lands boundaries and all sorts of stuff that's i think it's like 1600 waypoints along the whole route and there's a um, smartphone app that we worked with some developers to create uh, for that route so fully like gps enabled users can leave comments at um, any particular like water source or something like that just leaving updates on like oh it's mid-october this one has gone dry and probably won't have water until it rains again or you know people can leave leave comments like that so there's you know all of this is is around helping helping people feel more comfortable and safer getting out on these bigger adventures in places that they might not be familiar with and so the more information you can share with them the the more uh comfortable and safe they can be out there what a cool project. So I got one in the Southeast for you. Yeah. So, and there's a few people have been working on this. Um, and you, you may know something about it. I mean, you may be all over it. I don't know, but we're, there's this salt loop, the Southern Appalachian loop trail. Have you ever heard of this? I have. Yeah. I don't know anything about it, but I've heard it in conversations a few times. Yeah. So we have these incredible mountain biking destinations. You've got DuPont State Forest, Pisgah National Forest, the Green River Game Lands, uh, Nantahala National Forest, and it links these pretty iconic mountain chains and areas around here. And you were talking about working with land managers and kind of a vision for the future of public lands. It would be great if there was just some way to not have to get on a two-lane road to link some of these um, areas up. And I, I know that there's, you know, constantly acquisitions that are going on to, you know, buy tracts of land and they become part of a game lands or a national forest. Um, this loop would be so cool. I'm going to, when we get off the call here, I'm going to send you over some information about it. So it's, it's awesome. on your ticker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those are, those are sorts of more ambitious projects that we're just starting to take on. Um, you know, there's, with with private lands, there's some really big challenges from liability perspectives with um, letting organizations come on and build trail, public trail on private lands, even if oh, the yeah. landowners find it. Um, West, I think it was West Virginia last year passed legislation that absolves private landowners of those liability issues if they opt to allow pri- pu- public recreation on their private lands, which is a big step forward because there's some pretty substantial trail infrastructure visions in that area that a lot of landowners want to be part of, but were unwilling to because of those liability issues. So that's a big step forward um, in some areas of the country. Um, We're working on another long distance route out along the West Coast called Orogenesis, which is a single track oriented route that will run through Washington, Oregon, and California. So almost like a mountain bike version of the Pacific Crest Trail. And Right now, based on all the scouting that's been done on the ground, it's looking like maybe it'll be 40% single track or something at this point. Fair bit of dirt road, bit of pavement here and there, um, fair bit of Jeep road on it. But that's one that um, Gabe Tiller is the the guy in charge of that project. He's one of our board members and the director of the Oregon Timber Trail Alliance. But his his work on that has basically identified that in all the scouting that we've done and our volunteers have done basically three percent of the full route i think is the number are gaps where there's no great option kind of like what you're describing Mm -hmm. that riders spit out on busy roads or something and you know it ends up being i 
forget what three percent of that ends up being like 300 miles or um something like that 200 yeah i think it's about 350 miles but which sounds like a lot but in the grand scheme of things that's three percent of a route that's over three thousand miles long so like and that's all with existing stuff on the ground so right now what we're working on is is assessing just like what what options are there for potentially building trail in those gaps um and getting things linked together and some of those areas actually already have some pretty substantial trail projects underway that'll be you know a few years out um but can serve as those links and in other areas we've started to reach out to uh, local trails advocacy groups and identify those those gaps to them and be like so like is this something that could fit in with your own own trail priorities and start those conversations to potentially um move toward doing some actual trail building or coordinating with with others for that trail building in the the next few years so it's that's kind of a new a new phase there's been very little in the way of uh long distance mountain bike route development um that's that's seen that kind of approach there's some really cool examples like the timber trail in in oregon that really has been doing um a good job with with constructing new little links here and there um and then, you know, some of the trails like the, the Colorado Trail and the Arizona Trail, obviously, um, but they're not kind of sole, solely developed for bike packers. Hmm. What a fascinating project. Yeah, it's been it's been a ton of fun. It's been a ton of work so far, but really rewarding. And the, the response from the community has been so, uh, so positive that like that, that reinforcement is what really pushed us forward through those first couple of years when it's, you know, a lot of work that you're not really getting paid anything to do. Um, but now we're, we're past that and actually able to, uh, we hired Kate Boyle officially, um, earlier this year and hopefully we'll be able to get another, another person to join our staff, uh, from a route development standpoint later, later this year or next year. Very cool. I have a couple uh, questions here on kind of the sport of mountain biking what's interesting to you what trends do you see but i kind of want to switch that up a little bit into what have you seen this pandemic do to mountain biking and, and what have you yeah it, i have some i have some things that i've witnessed but i just kind of want to get your take because you're much more deeply immersed in the industry than than i am yeah so there's been a lot of interesting things going on um i mean you could start with just looking at the industry side and the incredible growth in bike sales um mountain bike and otherwise and actually the um the most like the highest grossing category of bikes recently have been uh both road bikes and mountain bikes in the like roughly thousand dollar to fifteen hundred dollar price point so a lot of people buying kind of middle of the road uh bikes and, you know, it's hard to say if they're upgrading or if those are their first bikes. I haven't seen any data about that. But, yeah, bike sales have gone through the roof in the last few um, few months, which is fantastic. Like anything that we can do to get more folks out riding bikes is great. Um, we've seen trails all over the country being just inundated with use. And, you know, here in Prescott, some of the trailheads around were the busiest I've ever seen them on like a Thursday morning right. um, when a lot of stuff closed down which is also great um but definitely was in some areas creating challenges with folks traveling from you know cities out to rural areas kind of like here people were coming up from phoenix to ride in this area or to hike or whatever they were doing um during the 
the well the worst of the first part of the pandemic um and you know that that definitely was causing some issues there were you know so many areas in the west where rural communities put out messages to uh or asking asking people to stay away that you know we those communities don't need more stress on their small health infrastructure on their search and rescue infrastructure first responder infrastructure whatever it is um and some places that was being respected other places wasn't wasn't really at all unfortunately um and you know i think there were definitely challenges with mountain bikers especially and that i mean part of that's just because that's the community i hear a lot more about personally but you know big group rides everyone was wasn't at work or we're working more flexible hours. And so just big group rides or meeting at trailheads and hanging out and just kind of setting a bad example for all other users. Um, so that was, that was unfortunate to hear about. Uh, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think it's, it's really good that there are a lot more people looking at bikes as ways of recreating some areas in cities. We've been hearing about, um, more people buying bikes to commute on because it's safer from a health standpoint than riding public transit right now. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting into bike commuting that way, which is great also. Um, and from, you know, from a more of like a bike tourism perspective or a bike packing perspective, uh, it's been something we've been prioritizing to just get the message out to, to people to actually reach out to the small communities through which they might ride and make sure that they're welcoming riders at that point and welcoming tourists because the worst thing that we can do as like a an outdoor recreation community is just be be bad stewards of our community and just be showing up and inundating communities that actually don't want people to be visiting yet and you know there were especially up in montana and idaho there were communities that you hear from people that like they start seeing tourists returning and like that makes them scared right and it's really sad when um when recreationalists are, are being selfish enough that they think it's okay for them to go, go somewhere and do something when that community is still saying like, please stay away. Like we legitimately don't want you here yet because of, you know, our own health. So that's been frustrating to see. And, um, there's still like here in Arizona, Navajo nation, um, has closed their borders to tourism. They did it in March. Uh, it's been a while now. And so, so the wild West route through there is closed, um, until, things improve in that area. And I just saw the, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition last week uh, put out a uh, plea asking people to stay away from, from Bears Ears just because the small communities that have pretty large indigenous populations on the kind of surrounding the east side of the Bears Ears region have all been hit pretty hard by the, the coronavirus. And so they're, they're just asking tourists to stay away and saying that like this is the right now, this is the, the strongest uh, form of solidarity you can take is just wait to visit so yeah i think that's that's the biggest thing at this point is recognizing that states and communities are all responding differently and listening to those those individual ones and it's going to be really interesting in the next month here to see if there start to be more closures and more uh more communities going back and and saying like yeah we we did welcome you back but things are getting worse again so we're going to ask you to stay away a bit longer yeah that's a really good point i mean overall i i think it's hard to argue that riding bikes and being active is is a healthy activity it's a good thing to do but at the same point being respectful of the communities you may run across is 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 a really good message yeah yep it's and it's definitely a tough balance i mean 
I, as much as anyone, I would love to go out and just spend a week bike packing. Um, right now in some parts of the country that things are getting worse. I mean, right here in Arizona right now, things are, are deteriorating really quickly. And so it's one of those questions like what's, what's the, the safest thing to do? And is it, you know, traveling solo and carrying your, all your own food? Like, yeah, that's probably pretty dang safe. Um, you know, you're not going to really impact anyone unless something goes wrong, which is still a possibility, but you know, hopping in the car with the family and going car camping and mountain biking around Moab, like that's going right. to have much more. <laughs> right. May want to put the nicks so. on that for a bit. Yeah. Well, Kurt, this has been a fascinating interview. I'm getting ready to get kicked out of the studio here. <laughs> um, All right. I've got people <laughs> right outside the door. Um, but before we shut this down, are there any sponsors or projects you'd like to plug? And where can our listeners follow you? Yeah. So um, let's see. I think as far as projects, I don't, you know, Bikepacking Roots, which you can follow at bikepackingroots.org. It's R-O-O-T-S. Um, or on Instagram, just Bikepacking Roots. Uh, lots of exciting projects going on there for me personally. Um, my big racing goals this year were the Iditarod and the grand loop. And so now with everything else having been canceled, uh, kind of up in the air as to what's next, um, for me, but, uh, for sponsors, I'm really fortunate to have some, some great companies supporting what I do and supporting everything that I'm doing. Um, pivot cycles is a, a big one. And then in, right in, in your backyard, industry nine has been, a big supporter great folks of there. what i'm doing yeah they're such good folks and then um shimano 9.8 mrp suspension out of grand junction great little company um so yeah all those folks you know i can't can't do what i do without without them um and then yeah if you want to follow more of my own adventures or pursuits um just kurt.refsnyder r-e-f-s-n-i-d-e-r uh on instagram is probably the best place or um, ultra MTB is my coaching company and you can learn a little bit more on, on ultra MTB.net. Kurt, what, uh, ha- I, I never asked. So you went to the Iditarod. How did you do in that, in that race? Uh, somehow I managed to become, I, apparently the first rookie ever to win it. Okay. So, so it went well. <laughs> <laughs> While 2020 has been a crazy year for most of us, you won the Iditarod as a rookie and you did a phenomenal job setting the FKT on the loop. So, you yeah, know, congratulations on your 2020. Thanks. It's been a great start to the year and actually enjoying right now dialing it back and not having anything huge that I'm working toward in the, the next few months. Well, congratulations. Please reach out if you have anything interesting.